Voice Nation. Greetings, colleagues and companions, fellow merchants of metal and purveyors of plastic, and welcome to another thrill-packed, fun-filled episode of Device Nation, Merchants of Metal. Sounds like a great name for a band. This is Kevin Brown, your collegial curator. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am, and believe me, our day just got more wonderful by listening to this episode, as we have an inspiring guest today, Mass General legend Dr. Andrew Freiberg, a CV a mile long. His fingerprints are all over many of the procedures and technologies we take for granted today. An amazing conversation as he shares his life story with the Device Nation audience. Well, our last conversation with Dr. Vonda Wright was amazing. And as we talked, I reflected upon my two daughters in this orthopedic device world. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. And that experience has made me keenly aware of the unique strengths and challenges faced by both female reps and female surgeons in our space. On a humorous note, some time ago, I was standing in an OR suite with four other reps waiting for a revision to get going. You ever find yourself in that situation? Always somebody wanting to flex. And there were three male reps and one female rep. The door to the room opened and in walked the surgeon. And as if on cue, the female rep, who's actually very awesome at her job, by the way, as if on cue, she she looked at all of us and proceeded to walk straight towards the doctor and give him a hug. A full frontal hug, no less. The surgeon seemed slightly taken aback, but was clearly not against the idea conceptually. The guy next to me whispered, I got nothing. I immediately offered him $100 to go do the same thing, and what followed was an absolutely hilarious auctioneer-style bidding war with me and the other rep teamed up against this poor guy, trying in vain to up the ante to get him to do the same. I believe we closed the bidding at $1,000, and even at that number and a double dog dare, the answer was still no. I think for $1,000, I would have at least attempted to slide in a side hug. Bring it in, doctor, and then blame it on jet lag, medication change, or something. So she turned around and walked back towards us, and I will never forget the look on her face. The rep beside me was absolutely right. We had nothing. We had nothing. And to you ladies listening, I am not suggesting you do this. My daughter so eloquently remarked when I told her this story, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Indeed. Well, I can tell you a few rep friends of mine called the other week wanting a hug as they received an RFP from a major system for hips, knees, all in, and the dollar number requested was most unsettling. I heard it's a race to the bottom more times in the last week than I think I've heard in the last six months. But we are not those who shrink back in discouragement and dismay, Device Nation. Let's unpack this further by going to the city that thinks it's 1969 every year, Asheville, North Carolina. Definitely a bucket list destination. There is the Biltmore House, 33 bedrooms, 65 fireplaces, and 43 bathrooms. George Costanza would be all in on that. My favorite room is the banquet hall. Not only is the pipe organ amazing, that's what I want in my formal dining room, a pipe organ. The ceilings in this room are are 70 feet high. Now, when I see something like this, I'm in complete awe of the architectural grandiosity, the grandeur, but my mom is always like, can you imagine the heating bill? It's always about heating with her for some reason. So what does this have to do with the RFP from hell. Years and years ago, when we sold these implants for list price, believe it or not, it was much like that ceiling in the banquet hall. Nice and high, plenty of room to move around, not a care in the world, outrageous heating bills. But the tincture of time has brought that ASP ceiling lower and lower with many of you feeling like you're living in one of those hobbit houses in the Shire, wondering, can the ceiling get any lower on these halo metal and plastic implants that we're selling? Well, the short answer is yes. So what's the answer to the angst? Well, let's turn to one of my favorite 1980s comedians, Stephen Wright, for the answer. A lot of people are afraid of heights, not me. I'm afraid of widths. I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of widths. That's just a great line. Well, in today's climate, with an encroaching ceiling on our metal and plastics, we cannot be afraid of widths, as that's our only way out of this, is to go wide and 
go deep. Remember that Sunday school song, deep and wide? Well, going wide is what the Brown Bag series has been all about, finding products that I believe firmly bring value to your call pattern without competing with the products you're currently responsible for selling. Going wider, going deep is making sure that you're dug in in your current position so as to provide a good vantage point to go wide. We have an incredible interview coming up on this aspect alone, going deep. For the orthopreneurs that listen to this show, by digging in deep and looking wide, I believe the next five years will represent phase two of many of your careers, and it will be incredibly rewarding. Well, Daughtry sang it best. What about now? What about today? Here's a mailbox money, we love mailbox money, opportunity carved out for Device Nation listeners to kick off our Deep and Wide series that really doesn't involve a lot of work on your end. It's this easy. If you have a customer in your call pattern that can benefit from an in-house lower extremity standing CT solution, simply connect that customer with CurveBeam. CurveBeam scanners are of the highest quality and most widely used weight-bearing CT systems throughout the world so you know you're sending your customer to the best. Your best way of connecting with them is to reach out to their VP of Sales, Turner Dean, and ask for a brief demonstration of their system and overview of their referral program. Check out their site at Curvebeam.com and touch base with Turner at Turner.Dean at Curvebeam.com. Tell them Device Nation sent you. And as Monk said on my favorite TV show, You'll thank me later. Well, a huge thanks in the here and now to Dr. Andrew Freiberg for coming on the show to share his life with us. Crosslink Poly and UKA are just a few of the giant steps in orthopedics, and he was in the thick of both of them. Serial entrepreneur, former big box CMO, in the truest sense of the word, a real mensch in our space. He actually presents the answer to what we discussed today. We're going to tie that up at the end. A huge Device Nation welcome to Dr. Andrew Freiberg. Hey, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Dr. Freiberg, when they put another sidewalk in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater for the Orthopedic Walk of Fame, I fully expect to see your handprints cemented there. <laughs> it's nice, Kevin. You know, we get nervous when you say you're going to cement our hands. So. <laughs> that's, that's right. With Gent or Tober, I'm not sure. We can work those details out. I can't wait to ask you about your tenure at Mass General, your time at Zimmer as their first chief medical officer, contour heads, boating. But first, let's go back to Northwestern University. What put you on the path to medicine? You know, Northwestern uh, was uh, where I went to college up in Chicago. And those were the days where you thought you uh, found a school you'd, you'd like to go to and hope you got in. I got in early action and I'd never seen the school. It sounded like a good idea. I grew up in Cincinnati and Chicago was the big city. Uh, and I uh, I drove up and looked around and said, I'll go here. And I, I, I had a great time there. Uh, it was a fantastic college. And you may not know this, but I'm actually a fourth generation orthopedic surgeon. Oh, wow. And so I spent many years trying to figure out uh, what else I wanted to do, not be an orthopedic surgeon. While I was in college, I, I knew I wanted to go into medicine. So I, I did pre-med stuff, but very few people know this, but I actually finished an anthropology degree first. I worked with a really interesting guy named Napoleon Chagnon, who lived with the Yanomamo and written a lot about it. And I was way into that back then, but I was still, I decided to finish my pre-med and go off to medical school. Well, I got to go back there, doctor, four generations. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that, about your family history. So my great-grandfather, uh, Albert, which is my middle name, was really the first, one of the first orthopedic surgeons uh, in the United States. He went over and studied with Wolf. The, the guy who was famous for Wolf's Law. Yeah. Ju Julius Wolf. Um, and I actually have a copy of Wolf's original book, uh, which is just wonderful to have. But so my great grandfather uh, was a general surgeon at the University of Cincinnati and, and loved doing fracture care, went over, studied with Wolf, and then started the fracture service, really trying to get specialty care for uh, people with fractures. Uh, and that's really. Uh, so that was that was Albert. Then his son, Joe, uh, was an orthopedic surgeon also in Cincinnati. Uh, and uh, there's a nice, rich tradition of both academic and private practice because people used to be able to combine them very well. So both were involved with the university and had their own private practice. 
And my dad, who's in his late 80s and very healthy, just retired, I think at 87 from orthopedics. Uh, he was an orthopedic surgeon also in Cincinnati. So I guess I'm the guy that ran out of town. As far as I know, uh, Kevin, I'm the only fourth generation around. What an amazing story. Going back to Wolf's Law for a second, when my kids were little, and I would put chores on them that they deemed a little too difficult. I, I tried quoting Wolf's Law on them. I said, look, <laughs> <laughs> if, that it, work? if it's not stressed, it resorbs. And uh, they didn't appreciate that at all. So my gran- my grandfather kept uh, Wolf's book uh, next to his fireplace for 50 years and uh, next to- with the wood. And uh uh, when he passed away, my father gave it to me and said it, it needs to be restored. And I actually have had it restored at the University of Michigan. It took them a year, and they did it page by page and rebound it by hand. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. And anybody is welcome to see it when they come to town. That is gold. So when you were at the University of Michigan, you did a rotation at MGH and went on to complete your hip and implant fellowship there. What inspired you to ultimately uh, set up your practice there? Well, so it's interesting you bring up uh, some key points that were sort of decision trees for me. So after medical school uh, uh, in Cincinnati, I went to Michigan for a residency. And in my time there, I kind of decided I wanted to be an orthopedic oncologist. And I had two phenomenal mentors in Michigan, Larry Matthews, who was department chair and, and also a well-known hip and knee surgeon, and Bob Hensinger, uh, a famous pediatric orthopedic surgeon. They were major influences on my career. And Larry told me that I could not make the decision to be an orthopedic oncologist without spending a couple of months with Henry Mankin. So as a fourth-year resident, before you choose your fellowships, Larry called Dr. Mankin and so this kid's going to come up and spend two months at the end. He's going to make a decision. So I drove up here and and uh, I did a away rotation. And I love the oncology here. And I loved Henry. But I, I sort of decided that joints were really what I wanted to do in reconstruction, not so much the tumor part. And while I was uh, visiting MGH, I actually called over to Bill Harris's office and said, you know, I'm here. I'm interested in joints. Can I meet you? And can I come and talk to you? I had a great day with with Dr. Harris. Uh, visited the lab, visited the operating room, uh, and then uh, subsequently applied to his fellowship and got it. Um, and that's how that happened. After the fellowship, I went back home to Michigan, which is where the kids were born and uh, where I'd been a resident. I loved it there. And I had a very good five years there. Bill Harris and, and uh, Harry Rubash asked me if I'd come back to Boston and run the hip and knee service. And I just couldn't resist it. So off we went back to Boston. So We have a lot of younger listeners that tune into Device Nation every week, Dr. Freiburg. Could you give them a little insight as to what the landscape of Total Joints looked like for you when you made that decision? Sure. So back then, uh, Total Joints were in the hospital probably an average of five days, maybe seven days. Uh, I would say 50% of people went to inpatient rehab. Pretty interesting times. Uh, Virtually no partial knee replacements were done. Uh, and I'll tell you a great story about that. We we were doing mostly cemented stems in the mid-90s, maybe late 90s. It was still controversial as to whether to do a cemented or cementless stem. I think most of us had migrated to cementless cups, right. uh, but we didn't have cross-link poly. So like when I was first in practice, the new guy case uh, was a liner exchange. And I probably did one or two liner exchanges for polyware a week. You know, that's an operation that, that the young guy did that we don't even, you know, it's so rare to do one now. It's it's uh, it, it's a conference case. You know, it's it's wild. We, we don't see polyethylene anywhere like we used to. That's true. When I went back to Michigan as faculty, I, I met with Larry Matthews and I said, Dr. Matthews, I, I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. What's the thing that works the worst in joint replacement? <laughs> and he looked at me and I don't he, he had a very serious look on his face. Like, I don't know where this is going. And he said, partial knee replacement, unicondylar knee, it's horrible. And I looked at him and I said, I'm going to dedicate myself to it. And he goes, oh, my God, what a disaster. <laughs> and, and that was like the, what, a very important decision in my life. Uh, and he mentored me and helped me and so did people going forward. But, you know, partial knees has, has been an important part of my career. 
Uh, but it began by Larry Matthews telling me that was the thing that did the worst. Well, I can't wait to unpack that subject later, but I do have to ask you about this. I noted a stint around that time in your career at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. What drew you to that Nordic country? <laughs> so it's a great story. So I actually, I didn't uh, uh, go there other than to visit, but I, I mentored somebody for their PhD thesis. And I got a diploma that I can't read and a check that I couldn't cash in Kroner. And so that was uh, that was helping somebody get their PhD dissertation done. It was a great experience, but a, a short-term uh, kind of thing. So fast forward to now, you've transitioned back to your practice. What does that look like? And what are you up to these days? Right now, I'm uh, full-time in practice at Newton Wellesley Hospital. You know, I've been coming to Newton Wellesley for at least 10 years. And, you know, about 10 years ago, we wanted to do more volume than we could really accomplish in MGH and also get into the community a little bit. So I started going a couple of times a month and then hired a couple of, of surgeons that would be both at MGH and at Newton Wellesley. And I've returned full time at Newton Wellesley. It's been a great experience for me. I mean, it's it's uh, a place I'm very familiar with. Uh, it's been done well during COVID. Uh, it's a mile and a half from my house. And so there's no commuting or fooling around. And um, it's so that's that's it's been a great decision. As you look back on your time at MGH, I mean, you've seen some amazing things. Uh, I believe the first modular hip was developed there and you worked alongside some of the greats. Any thoughts as you look back? You know, it's it's really interesting to take a pause for me personally and think back is one of the things when you're in a place like that, you don't always recognize what's around you. Uh, and when you look back and you think of the innovations uh, from Bill Harris and from Orhun Mortolu, you know, who really is the guy who developed Crossing Poly and, and its modern form. And, and you look at the things going on, it's just remarkable to be a part of the history and practice of a place like that. I mean, such great institutions are really uncommon. You've been on so many committees and professional organizations over the years. Uh, I got to ask you just a couple things about some of it. Uh, I noticed years ago you were on the Massachusetts Orthopedic Society Committee to evaluate a hip and knee registry. You think we'll ever see uh, a U.S. version of the Swedish, Australian registry in our lifetime? Uh, I don't think so, actually. Uh, and, you know, in Massachusetts, we were trying to get a collective uh, effort from both the, the practitioners, the hospitals, and from the insurance companies to have a registry uh, with shared open data, similar to you know to the national registries you bring forward. But I, you know, when you think about it, we live in a in a complicated country, as COVID has really pointed out. I mean, there are a lot of things that we cannot agree on, and a lot of things right. become really complicated uh, quickly. And I think that that long term studies like registries have a hidden problem. The hidden problem is, is we're not comfortable sharing our social security number or our personal data in a national way that tracks us over time and place. Right. And unless unless we do like Australia or England uh, or or the Nordic countries where your social security number is really your key to healthcare and the only way in, uh, unless we were to do that, I don't think we can track people in a way that's complete enough for it to work. Uh, I don't think we'll. I don't think we'll do that as a country. You were an officer in the Harris Club for six years. I just had to ask you about that organization. Uh, what's it all about, and what did you do there? It's funny that you picked up on that. So, Bill Harris uh, uh, ran the fellowship that many of us uh, uh, did at Mass General, uh, and and we had a meeting each year. Uh, which was a closed meeting of his fellows. Uh, and we, we either had a dinner or presentations or both. It was a great tribute to Dr. Harris. And when, when Dr. Harris really retired, he asked us to stop meeting uh, because he wouldn't be there. And although it was difficult as a group, we decided to respect his wishes. Uh, but we had a great time having, and the collegiality and camaraderie and the professionalism of that group is pretty remarkable. And we, we still remain friends, but that society, Bill asked us to stop having a formal meeting. Dr. Harris was such an icon to me early in my career. Any any thoughts on him? I mean, you worked very close beside him. He's an amazing person, a fascinating person. Interestingly, he's as demanding of himself as he is as everybody else. And that's a great personality trait. He is uh, amazingly insightful and amazingly innovative. 
And so I, I feel very fortunate to have had time to work along with him. And uh, he taught me a tremendous amount. I looked at one team you were connected with. And as a rep, I had to ask you about it. Value analysis team. <laughs> it, it gives oh, us yeah. angst as reps oh, yeah. just to say those three words. Uh, I would love an insider's perspective. What's going on behind those closed doors that we are not privy to? Yeah, value analysis teams are bats. That's, that's enough to make you itch, I'm sure. Yes. So the problem was... Um, the late 90s and early 2000s, the, the problem for, for hospitals was every innovation, whether it be uh, incremental or dramatic, came at increased cost. And the problem is, is that in large health systems, there, there's no way to control cost without some or, or even keep a check on it without having some type of organized approach to it. And I think that the initial concept of a value analysis team is not to cut price, but the, the purpose of a value analysis team is to try to value new technology and where does it fit? And in fact, is it safe for something desirable to have in the health system? Because as soon as it's in a system, it can get used a lot across a number of hospitals. So even though it's come to sort of mean, give us something cheaper or tough negotiation or limited contracts, it started off really as, as a way to, to analyze data and safety for new products. And I, I think it's a, it's a very important role for large health systems. I don't disagree with that at all. I know you hate it still. I know. Because <laughs> to you, when you hear your product's going to go to the vat, all you think of is we're going to get screwed on price. And yeah. you might get screwed on price. But the problem is, is that the price really, even though, you know, in large companies or small, you know, any company wants to set the price, the real sort of value or, or market prices, what, what people are willing to pay for it. Well, you know, you've been the recipient of many honors, the AOS Achievement Award, Sir John Charlie Award, top 26 knee surgeons in the U.S. I could go on and on. Anything stand out to you as you look back on your career or something that you particularly cherish? I'll tell you, every year at uh, AUKUS, my former fellows, we have a dinner. And when I look down the table and see the 70 or 75 people that have been fellows with our group and with me and their success and their smiles and hear the stories of their family. Uh, that's the greatest treasure uh, in my professional life. No question about it. I was looking at the roster of names that have come through that you've touched in a professional way. What, a, what an amazing legacy. I know that has to be very rewarding. Well, you're, you're kind to say it, but it's... Uh, it's that you know that's the kind of legacy that you hope for uh it's a living legacy it's a terrific thing for me i, I i'm very proud of it actually in 2002, I got to talk a little metal and plastic for a minute. You did a live surgery with the Unispacer. I've actually sold that product. Do you think that an interpositional will ever find its way on the orthopedic stage? No, I think that you know that effort uh, was a valiant effort. When you think about it, it was a way to do a uh, almost a partial knee replacement without doing a knee replacement. Right. And I I think that uh, we might see some interposition type biologic graphs in the future. But I think the so-called, you know, metal or mechanical ones are probably short-lived. And I think the other thing to, re you know, is a partial knee replacement works so darn well, having that interim step probably isn't necessary. But, you know, back then the unispacer, partial knees were pretty early. Instruments weren't as good, so forth. And uh, I think we've, we've really come to learn that unicondylar knee replacement is it's a great operation. Let's talk about unis for a second, doctor. You came into a procedure that was getting very mixed results. And what do you think were the, a couple of things that stand out to you as real breakthroughs that, that really changed the trajectory of it? So I think the two things that changed the trajectory are no question are improved instrumentation, in particular, the spacer block technique, Yes, which I think has made it predictable for virtually every surgeon. The second thing that's, I think, been most important has been improved bearing surfaces, which have taken wear out of the fixed bearing uh, discussion. If you look, almost every fixed bearing cemented uni uses the same two peg and keel configuration that George Galante came up with. And so it's fascinating to me that the, you know, the Miller Galante uni shape has survived time and it, it's really a phenomenally stable tibia 
we've learned some things about, you know, better improved shape of the femur to make it easier. But I don't think that's improved our outcome particularly. I think a big breakthrough from what I've seen in the OR as a rep is just that two millimeter spacer that you push in there. I think early in my career, many surgeons were balancing it like a total. Yep. And that led to some early failures. What a amazing instrument set that MG was originally. George had intermedullary alignment and extramedullary alignment. And I, I went in the late 90s and spent some time watching Dr. Galante operate. And he always put his distal femur at four degrees uh, on the IM cut. And I sort of filed that away as interesting. And I asked him, why do you always cut it at four degrees? It, there's two other angles. He said, because it always works if you do that. And I, 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 I filed that away and fast forward, uh, I had the chance to be on the, uh, the, the Zook team with Zimmer and I was on the instrument team. We started playing around with different ways of doing this. And I said, you know, Dr. Galante taught me this. Why don't we do link cuts? And it turned out that the, uh, linked cut spacer block method, uh, which initially was a little controversial because it didn't take into the center of hip me, you know, right. the mechanical alignment into consideration. It was a little controversial, uh, but it was incredibly reproducible. And I, I think that helped a lot. You got any opinions on PFJs? Yeah, I think, you know, the PFJs are, are a technically uh, sensitive operation. And what I mean by that is it's, uh, you know, you're a little bit like landing a helicopter in a tighter spot than you are in the front of a whole knee. And so, it takes a little bit of practice. I think the results have been good. I do prefer some brands over another, you know, the sort of the inset ones right. that are a little thinner, I think are better. But no, I think it's a great operation. I mean, there's a lot of discussion among surgeons about what patients should get them because, you know, people who've had chronic patellofemoral disease can be a, a really diverse group. But boy, when you find the right person with isolated disease and they don't have any flexion contracture, uh, and they want a partial knee, it's a great operation. So a patient comes in to your waiting room that already has a PFJ, and then one of their compartments goes, uh, are you open to doing a uni on that, bicomp, or are we going to total? I would say I'm, I'm not open to it. The reason is, is I think the, that at least in my own hands, my results of conversion to a total knee have been so good. Right. Uh, I think you can totally do a partial, you know, add a medial lateral uni to a PFJ. But uh, I think what people want, I mean, I have this saying, you know, patients are just people like you and me. And what we want, I think, is fewer operations and good long-term results. And if you've had one operation that's done its job, uh, I think you want to sort of go to one that that's probably going to be more complete. So my bias has been to convert that to a total knee. You did a live surgery on a bicruciate retaining knee in 2014, and a surgeon I follow on Twitter was asking about this very concept just the other day, and I told her I would ask you about it. Uh, reproducible procedure in a community setting? No. Uh, I think, uh, at least in my hands, I don't think it is reproducible. Uh, and there's a lot of research that's been done looking at range of motion and tightness and uh, late ACL or PCL rupture. Uh, I think that doing a combined ACL-PCL sparing is something that we'll look back at as something interesting, but not something we're going to do. Uh, you know, to your point, maybe at doing a, a medial or lateral uni at the same time, but that experiment was done 30 years ago, not with very good instruments. The fact is, is that a total knee replacement in most people is going to last a heck of a long time. And with the modern bearing surfaces that we have and understanding of kinematics, awfully good. And so I think that some of those things are, are going to be less important. There's some other things that I think are more interesting than, than bicomps myself. Is there any place for metal on metal in 2021? I don't think so. If you look back and you look at the complexity of it, and you look at what happens to people over time and compare that to a cementless hip replacement with a ceramic head and a cross-link bearing, it's a very different 20-year, 30-year pathway. You have a metal-on-metal -metal hip, have a resurfacing. In five years, when you get a little ache in your hip because you were out doing too much, they want to check iron levels. Your iron levels are up a little bit. You get an MRI. The MRI shows a little fluid. Nobody's sure what to do. 
They talk about revising it or not revising it or repeating the ion levels. I think it, it puts you in a category of being a chronic patient uh, instead right. of uh, restoring activity and health. So I think that's something to be avoided. You talked about the spacer block technique for unis being controversial. Well, I think we can both agree that the two incision hip was even more controversial <laughs> at the time. Well, it sure was. You know, my approach to MIS was what we were trying to do was something that hurt less, allowed people to maintain their independence, and maybe cause less blood loss or tissue trauma. And so we didn't know if it was the anesthetic, the medicines, the where we did the incision. You know, people were, were searching for this, you know, improved operation. Right. And the two incision was just one embodiment uh, of that. I will tell you that um, I did my very first one live for our hip and knee course uh, at uh, the Harvard Hip and Knee Course. And I I thought I had chest pain for a minute, but I, I decided it was just indigestion. But I I had I had some help in the OR, but still, the first time you do one was, uh, you do it live, it was a pretty interesting experience. I've been in on my share of them, and fortunately, I mean, they all went well. The patients did yeah. did well, and I, I I may be wrong in this. It's just just my my take. I think it opened up a lot of people's minds to anterior later. They had already crossed that bridge, putting the cup in that way with the two incision. Yeah, I agree. And the two incision, uh, interestingly, in my series, I didn't have any loose loose implants or fractures. I, I the series was very good. The problem was it was hard to teach people. And I think there's an interesting point. You know, my friend Rich Berger points out something that, that's really important uh, for people, I think, to hear, which is when you learn a new procedure, what orthopedic surgeons do, the first thing they do is they think, no, I'm not going to do it like the way I was taught. I think I'm going to try it this way. Right. Uh, beca- because everybody wants to put their spin on it. And when you try something new, learn from an expert, try it their way do some of that before you start fooling around with it. And that was the problem with the two incision. People get trained in it and then they say, oh, I want to use this stem. I want to try it this way. I don't want to take an x-ray. I want to do this. And people got different results because they, they didn't do the way, you know, they wanted to try their way instead of the way that they were taught. And uh, if something's technically sensitive, boy, you can cause trouble that way. It was awesome seeing the Astabia Reamer spinning on live fluoro. I'm like, wow, why haven't we done this all along? <laughs> it was awesome, except for we're wearing lead all day. I agree. And yeah. other than that, it was awesome. <laughs> it's easy for me to say. I was on the other side of the table. I saw a presentation you did, and the title of it was How Often Do High Flex TKA Patients Use High Flexion? And I thought, let's ask the gentleman who gave the presentation. The answer is not as much as you think. You know, we were interested. When high flex became a concept, it's one of those things that uh, there was a uh, sort of a complex interplay between marketing and reality. So the idea behind the design of a high flex knee was that if you got high flexion, like people do around the world sometimes, you wouldn't damage the poly right. by the posterior, the, the femoral condyles. And so the idea was that if you get that flexion, it won't hurt anything. And people interpreted that as if I get a high flex knee, I can bend my knee 160 degrees. Right. And that that's not necessarily true, as you know. And so we were interested and in, we used uh, a uh, instrumented uh, device that we actually made to measure flexion and saw that people rarely, particularly in the United States, went past, you know, 140, 135 degrees. Uh, I don't remember the exact number, probably 15 years ago. They don't achieve high flexion purposefully very often. You're booking yourself for a hip and knee replacement, doctor, next week. What are you going to have put in you? So I think what I would do is, uh, you know, you hear a lot of surgeons uh, talk about find somebody you want to do your surgery uh, and then uh, trust in them to do it. I think I'd probably take that approach. But if you're, I can't imagine that you're going to let me get away with that answer. No, I'm not. <laughs> I would uh, I would have a, uh, a blade type cementless stem. Right. I think there are a number of really good on growth blade st- uh, shaped stems. I'd have a one piece ceramic head i would have a uh, either a plasma spray or or some type of mesh 3d printed uh tie cup personally i like melt irradiated so-called first generation crossing polyethylene i think the data that we have on that now at 20 years is outstanding i have no objection to the vitamin e bearings i think they're super but if i had a choice i would put in the first generation melt irradiated and that's what i put in most of my 
patients today. What about on the knee? What would you like? On the knee, I think I would be a little bit less sensitive. I I, I think that uh, doing a, a crucial retaining knee, if you have mild deformity, I guess that the, the answer depends on how bad off I am. If I've eaten too much and waited too long uh, and my knees really screwed up, uh, I'd prefer a PS type knee. And I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of, of, a lot of people are doing cruciate retaining femurs with a cruciate sacrificing bearing surface today, either ultra congruent type or medial congruent type. My own personal results with that knee have been so outstanding. That's what I would choose. And I'd have a cemented knee. I'm 58 and, uh, Pretty darn active, and I'd still have a cemented total knee. In 1995, you had a presentation about ultrasound <laughs> to evaluate polyethylene thickness after a TKA, and I've seen my share of failures over the years where the poly just wore through, and then you had a real mess on your hands. And it kind of inspired me. Is there a place for wear strips where your knee starts squeaking when it's time to come back in or or that technology? I wanted to ask you about that. Is what, what can patients be doing or thinking about to avoid that from happening? You know, it's a great question. I, I can't remember seeing wear uh, in a modern bearing surface, particularly in the crosslink ones. And so I think that wear is a serious problem. Uh, going forward is pretty much solved in the in the total knee world. It's remarkable. It depends on the bearing surfaces. That study you picked up on was, uh, it's funny you picked up on that because the problem was, is, you know, as you know, polyethylene wear was very common. Right. And we, could, we couldn't tell who needed a lighter exchange or not because a knee will sit in the dwell point and it was really hard to measure the polyethylene thickness on plain x-ray over time. Uh, because the angle was different. So I had this idea to use ultrasound to try to measure the polyethylene thickness. And it turns out you can. It's it's very reproducible. It turned out not to be clinically important, but it was a lot of fun because Laser Greenfield, who was the chief of surgery, was, was obviously a famous vascular surgeon. And he had a couple research ultrasound machines, and he let me have one for a year. John Grady Benson, who's in Connecticut, and I uh, played around with that and developed a method, but it, it didn't become clinically relevant. I've got to ask you about one presentation you made because the title just jumped out at me. and I, t- <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> it reminded me of uh, a case I brought in a bone mill for. We were doing Robin Ling's uh, CPT stem, and Central Sterile ran the entire Samsonite case and turned it into a piece of modern art, destroyed the bone mill, but just put a sterile indicator in it and autoclaved it, which was just crazy. But when I saw your replantation of a whole autoclaved humerus, I thought, wow, that sounds pretty out there as well. What uh, What's going on with that? Great story. So back in Michigan, when I was a resident, Bill Smith, who uh, was really one of the fathers of orthopedics at the University of Michigan, and he did a lot of oncology. Bill took, Dr. Smith took care of a patient who had uh, chondrosarcoma of the humerus and it spread throughout. And he had the idea of just re- removing the humerus, autoclaving it to kill the tumor, and he put it back. And when I got there as a resident, uh, Charlie Saltzman, who's now the, the chief of orthopedics at the University of Utah, Salt Lake City, Charlie was my chief resident. And Charlie said, You want to go into academics? I said, yeah, nice, nice to meet you. <laughs> and he, Charlie basically gave me uh, 50 x-rays, a bunch of stuff, and said, write this up. Dr. Smith ought to claim the whole humerus. Go talk to Dr. Smith and do a good job. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and that began a friendship with Charlie Saltzman that's lasted decades. And uh, and I got to work with Dr. Smith, who's no longer alive, but he was wonderful. But, you know, Bill had this creative idea to save somebody's life and and to give them good function. And it worked. That guy had that humor still. He passed wow. away. What an amazing story. That was amazing. That's a better story than my stupid bone mill story. You've done so <laughs> many presentations since that first one in 1989, highlighting aspirin to prevent heterotopic ossification. Any particular paper presentation as you look back that you're really proud of? Well, you know, uh, if you want to talk about things that really mattered over time, it's it's been... Uh, looking at different bearing surfaces uh, and being part of that big group mm-hmm. uh, that was has really that brought forward crossing poly. I think probably one of the, the presentations I remember the most was 
about our antibiotic polyethylene because early on we, we kept it pretty sort of close to the cuff because we weren't sure where it was going or how it would work. But I had a chance to give that to the Knee Society, which is a lot of fun because the doors closed and people say whatever they really, really think and believe and you get immediate feedback, which is great. But, you know, we had the idea to include antibiotics in polyethylene to see if we could treat infection. And that's an active project for us now. But I remember the first time we, uh, we brought it up. Well, you should have heard the crowd had a lot of ideas of other drugs they put in polyethylene to help us. But I, I think I'll leave it to antibiotics are the ones we're going to focus on. Wow. That would be a real game changer. I hope so. And I, I think, you know, it's a complex FDA regulatory process. We've got great data, great things going. And uh, my hope is in a few years, we have prosthesis that will be commercially available. I see three words over and over in a few projects that your name is attached to, patient decision aids. Tell us about it. Yep. So the concept of shared decision-making, you know, when you when you go to the doctor and they say you, uh, you have hip arthritis, uh, do you want a hip replacement? And how, how you make that decision for you and with your family is complicated. And it's not very formalized and it's not often very informed. And so uh, a shared uh, decision-making is a process and a patient decision aid are things that are available, either a video or a handout that really has uh, a structured explanation of what it is, what a joint replacement is, the risks and benefits, literally with stories or vignettes and pictures of people uh, and their experience with pain relief or not, or infection or not, uh, and function, and helps people come to good decisions with with their doctors. And so we've had a great experience looking at this over time, and I, I think it's improved the decision process. One thing I'd like to add is some recent work we've done actually shown that when patients go through shared decision-making with a decision aid in their care team, their results are better which to me is incredible because early on, you know, well, maybe people are just going to decide to take the aspirin and not go to the operating room. This sounds terrible. Uh, but what really happens is, is very few people drop out, but the ones that have surgery, their results are statistically better as far as their patient reported outcomes. So it's amazing. If you formalize that process just a little bit, people actually do better. There's a lot of talk about wearables these days, doctor, as we talk about the patient. Love the idea of my mobility, hand-in-hand uh, hand with the Apple Watch. Uh, like what you see so far on this technology? Yeah, I mean, that's a whole, we could do another podcast if you've, if you've got the time on wearables. I, I think wearables are an incredible part of our future. Right now, we've had a great experience with my mobility. Uh, people like, our patients like it, the care team likes it. And it's a great example of, of how you can do something that improves, you know, people's interaction with healthcare. And just think how, how lucky to have that during COVID where people could do physical therapy after surgery without, you know, going to the place, uh, going to the therapist and risk all that contact. So wearables tell us a lot. I mean, uh, they tell us things about our heart, about our activity. Uh, and I think we're in the era of instrumented devices coming forward. I think a number of companies, particularly Zimmer Biomed, are at, really at the forefront of developing ways to to make our implants smarter. Speaking of Zimmer, you were their first chief medical officer during my tenure there. What was it like wearing the corporate hat? I had a phenomenal experience. I, I'm forever indebted to Yvonne Tornos, who uh, gave me that opportunity. You know, I, I had pretty much done what I wanted to do in orthopedics and was ready to try something different. I'd worked in the innovation space and so forth with some startups, but nothing as formal as being a CMO. And Yvonne uh, wanted to have a CMO when he joined Zimmer Biomet uh, with Brian Hansen. And I thought, you know, how often in your life do you get a chance to do something completely different? And with the experiences that for me, it was I had a fantastic time. I learned a tremendous amount. And, you know, working with the reps and, and the people who make the, our large companies work, people that are out, out and about doing the day-to-day, -day, it was a great experience. And one of my thrills was getting to speak at the national sales meeting to all the reps. What a great, great experience I had. You know, I, I miss surgery. Most people don't know, but if you go into industry and you're really not doing surgery, you only have two years before you can't be recredentialed. 
uh, as a surgeon. And so I had, I came to a point of where I had to make a decision. Am I doing this for 10 years or not? And I just decided that I missed uh, taking care of patients and and uh, working as a surgeon too much to give up on it. The scientific world has always been looking at alternative energy sources, and I can't believe they glossed right over Yvonne Tornos. Yeah, no, he is his own element. Yeah. His energy, his his ability, and, uh, you know, people get, you know, like to comment about his energy and his excitement. Uh, but what most people don't realize is that his quantitative ability, his quantitative analysis and his understanding of those things is above anybody you'll ever meet. Dr. Freiberg, you've gotten many of your ideas across the finish line at the patent office. One of them that caught my eye was the patent on a modular lateral hip augment in 2014. Was that the troke bolt on the Arcos? So it was a, a troke bolt and a way to attach it with a uh, uh, almost an augment. Because the problem, as you know, with troke bolts is they can tip. Right. Uh, and so we developed some augments that could be used uh, to do that. And, you know, when you, when you talk about patents, you know, one of the things that's an important concept, particularly for the younger people listening, is a patent is great. But if you don't commercialize it, it doesn't help people. And so always keep in mind, you know, to solve the problems of your day and try to bring forth commercial products that help people. And, and that, that's been a real like you know, love of my life to be able to do that. Project I saw your name on recently was Amplicore. I did some research on it, and it sounds pretty exciting. Tell us a little about it. So Amplicore is a is a startup company. I've gotten involved with them for the past year, and uh, it, it, I'm having a great time with them. They're very smart, very capable people. Uh, a lot of people have got some great pharma experience, and the idea is: can you take a commonly used drug in a different formulation? Uh, and put it into the knee either to help with meniscus repair or as something like an uh, an HA substitute, uh, you know, decrease inflammation and maybe even stimulate some cartilage growth. And there's a lot of animal data that supports this. It's it's a great team. And so we're working, we're getting ready uh, to go into phase one uh, safety uh, trials with this. And it's a, it's a well-funded, great startup. And uh, I'm having a great time with them. You are front and center on a SOAS-friendly dual mobility design, followed by an equally ingenious SOAS-friendly head, the Contura. Which which came first in your mind? So I'm going to tell you the story. It's it's a great story. It's probably a private story that I shouldn't tell, but what the hell. The um, <laughs> So I was seeing patients about five years ago in the office, and I saw a few people with SOAS tendonitis. Um, one after an anterior hip I did, one after a posterior hip, and the cup wasn't prominent. And they were younger, active, smaller women. And we tried cortisone injection and physical therapy, and there were some intermittent tears and sadness. And I walked out of that and I said, there's, there's got to be something I can do to prevent this. Because when people get so as tendonized after hip replacement, it's a pain in the neck and everybody's unhappy. And um uh, I was thinking about it. And then uh, Henrik Malkow, Harry Rubash, and Orhun, along with uh, a guy named McCarthy from our lab, had been working on it, trying to design a better dual mobility. And they had this idea of a contour dual mobility, but they were having some design issues. Uh, and they asked me to join them uh, to help them uh, sort of sort through that issue. And I listened to their presentation. I sat there and I said, hey, guys, you guys are missing the whole thing. They said, what do you mean? I said, we don't need a, con a dual mobility right now. We need a femoral head. And so that started the whole femoral head project. And we worked for a long time uh, and designed it. Uh, and we shopped it around. Orhun and I went and did a, uh, several road shows, you know, trying to convince larger companies to license this technology from us. I particularly remember going to Las Vegas to CCJR, Orhun and I, you know, we were our own little company that we, we started for this. And on the way back, we're taking the red eye from Vegas, uh, sitting next to the net, the bathroom in the back of the plane smells terrible. We're jammed in there. It's like 1130. And I look over at Orhun, I go entrepreneurs, you know, we're having a great time. <laughs> so anyway, so 
the big companies didn't didn't take it uh, because they they were they just didn't feel the need to honestly. And uh, Jeff Binder, who uh, I saw at one of our industry meetings, I, Jeff had looked at it and I said, Jeff, what do you think? He said, I think you should try to license it to Ceramtech. He said that way everybody will eventually buy it. It's a great design. And I said, Jeff, thanks. And you know, when you think about it, how how often do you get such a seasoned executive to give you, you know, business advice? Right. And uh, Jeff's smart. I listened to him, and we did, and we ended up licensing it to Ceramtech. So the and currently, it's it's the, the first company to sell it with their hip system is TJO, both Aaron and Aaron Hoffman's company. Right. And so we do a lot of TJO hips because we get our contoured head. So the idea is that the femoral head is the same shape from the top of it down to 180 degrees. So you get the same stability, same range of motion, et cetera. But beneath 180 degrees, it's contoured. So there's less soft tissue impact on the capsule and on the psoas tendon anteriorly. So it's round there instead of sharp. A lot of surgeons have told me they think it's it's probably an improvement because there's no sharp edge like a regular head. I think it's, you know, if, in orthopedics, if you make something more anatomical or contoured, it tends to work well. We're persevering with it. Uh, we've had great results, just those of us that are using it across the country, and, and hope that one of the bigger companies make the same decision, that it's a good technology. So I'm creating an image in my mind. What you've basically done is taken the fulcrum away. Yeah. So that it just creates more space for the psoas tendon. Right. And, you know, in the younger you know, smaller, more active person that's biking a lot or doing a Stairmaster or skiing where they have a lot of those things where the psoas is pulling. If you have a sharp edge there or a, you know, 36 millimeter head and a 50 cup and a five foot four or five foot six woman, you know, you're going to get psoas impingement uh, sometimes and, and you're going to have sadness in the land. If you can prevent it, boy, it's a lot easier than treatment. That's genius. Makes total sense. Well, you're nice to say it. I, I, I do like the idea, actually. If people in the audience want to learn more about it, just go on TJO's website. Does Ceramtech have anything on there? Uh... Yes, Ceramtech has a lot. So we have uh, a lot of uh, uh, anatomic and other papers looking at things. That, so if you Google Ceramtech and the name of the product is Contura, C-O-N-T-O-U-R-A, um, there's a lot of stuff online about it. And uh, uh, it's been a great product. You know that there's no increased risk of fracture. There's no other issue with it. Uh, Ceramtech's an amazing technology company, and they would, you know, they test the heck out of things. It's it's no question. Dr. Freiberg, your CV left my printer, encouraging me to get on Amazon and order more toner. Uh, what's <laughs> what's next for you? Well, you know, um, I'm really enjoying practice right now. I'm uh, back uh, teaching uh, fellows. I'm working with a couple startups and enjoying these things. I don't think I'll probably go back uh, to a big company full-time, although that was one of the greatest experiences of my lifetime. So I'm in a good place, but we, you know, right now we continue to try to commercialize the antibiotic polyethylene and continue to study the contoured head. Uh, and there's some other things we're cooking in biologics. Uh, it's a great time to be in orthopedics, let me tell you. It really is. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, I think other than my family, my legacy is is the uh, ability uh, and uh, uh, great nature of the fellows and residents that I've trained. That, to me, is uh, the greatest legacy uh, any one of us can have. And, you know, we all have grateful patients. We're fortunate in this world in orthopedics to be able to, to make people better. And, and that's always terrific. The next generation of well-trained people uh, who are committed to their patients and to improving this, that's really a legacy for me. Indeed. You know, you've uh, lectured all over the world. I've seen your name attached to country after country. I know your your passports are everywhere. What Outside the U.S., what's your favorite destination? Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to be able to travel and speak, and COVID's unfortunately messed that up. Uh, it's uh, each country and the culture. It, what's amazing to me is that everybody has the same problems, whether you're in in uh, India, uh, the Philippines. It doesn't matter where you go. The same problems of infection, fracture, dislocation and wear are, are what are around the world. Um, I have great. I've had great stories and great experiences uh, around the world. 
I've operated in the Philippines where they, they bought an air conditioner for me um, so that the operating room was cool because they're afraid the American would fall over. Um, <laughs> you know, the rest of the world wants to know what American surgeons do and experience. And um, it's just amazing to go to a place like Manila uh, and give a le- and give lectures after dinner when, you know, as a speaker, you're almost falling asleep because you're jet lagged, but the audience is listening at 10 o'clock at night because they want to know what you hear, have to say. And I would encourage everybody who has a chance to be involved with either Operation Walk or any of the things where you can do international medicine. You'll create friendships and relationships uh, and have experiences that are unparalleled. One of my favorite websites is Yacht Forums. I like lurking there as a imaginary Nordhaven yacht owner. And I've seen some pictures of the Philippines from a, a yachting perspective. Absolutely beautiful area. And I understand you've got a penchant for the nautical. Being on the ocean has been a part of my life, something I've always uh, loved. Even though I grew up in the Midwest, I ran away from home to do that. When you say a Nordhaven, it's a, I almost bought one of those a few years ago, but my wife said we couldn't have a boat uh, that she could swim faster than. And I don't think she was <laughs> interested in crossing oceans, but uh, we, uh, my wife and I met working for, for the moorings down in Roadtown, Tortola. Uh, as a charter, I worked down there almost a total of a year as a charter captain with her and she's equally, you know, experienced. And, um, we, um, we've had boats and recently sold a trawler about a year and a half ago. And I tried to buy another boat this winter, but a new one is coming in the spring and, um, we're excited to, uh, to get back on the water. The, um, one thing that's kind of different is, you know, during COVID I had some extra time and, um, Instead of uh, perseverating on the news, I, I took a course and I was able to get my hundred my Coast Guard license. And oh, if people have the sea time and the experience, uh, you do like an SAT prep course for a couple months. Then you take a Coast Guard exam, which is not particularly forgiving. Um, and uh, you can't miss more than one of 10 questions in the charting part where you fail. And... Um, it's a great thing, a great hurdle for those of, of, of you that like being on the water. So it's a great experience, too. I was watching a story about the mutiny on the bounty, and it just it stands as one of the greatest accomplishments in history of those guys being able to dead reckon their way back to England, right? Well, Open I, boat, I, I think, nothing. I don't think any one of us in current modern life could find our way anywhere. Um, and we're so used to <laughs> to modern electronics uh you know it is truly amazing you know when you bring a boat up along the way the mayflower came you know and they they were going to stop uh down near chatham but decided they'd run aground and they'd all perish so they took a little got little boat up and looked at plymouth and looked around and they said we better go up that way and you know just the risks and the courage that's one of the great fun things about boating on the, in the Northeast is you you get to relive those feelings. One thing I have to share with you as we just kind of close the the chapter on the boating side, there's a website called mvdorona.com. And Amazon engineer that has a, a Nordhaven, I'm going to pronounce that correctly from here on out, and it, it documents his journey around the world. He works as an engineer remotely, and it's just inspiring what he has gotten to see and he's put that circumnavigational bug in me. And I guess that would be a good question to ask you. I mean, you're talking about a new boat and is, is that on your uh, bucket list to do something like that? So I, I think I'd, I don't think I'd like to go around the world. I wouldn't mind going around the Caribbean for six months or a year, but uh, you know, the problem with the going around the world is you have to be a very patient person and some of these long ocean uh, trips are a pretty big deal. Um, again, you're going at five to seven knots and my wife is swimming by you. Um, uh, so that you, because you can't, you can't carry enough fuel to go faster. So I don't know. Um, maybe, uh, maybe someday if I retire and I can convince her, uh, we would go for, I'd love to go to Hawaii from the West coast. Friends. I'd love to do that trip and then go down to oh. go down to Australia and New Zealand. But 
right now, if you show up, they just don't let you in. So maybe in five or 10 years. If you had to sit down and give advice to your future self, you're going back in time, back to Michigan. What advice would you give yourself at the beginning of your career that you know now that you wish you would have known then or it would have helped you along? I think it's, uh, it's actually very important. A lot of us go to our first job, particularly those who go to an academic program, maybe where they trained, uh, and you become proficient, you become well-known locally, and you're doing all the good things, and you think, I'm going to be here forever. Uh, this is a wonderful place, wonderful people, and you think, I'm really here. I think the thing I would go back and tell myself don't be afraid to change. Uh, you're, don't be afraid to try something new. Uh, and uh, you will always have the skill as a dedicated phys- and capable physician. You know, we're well, you know, we can work anywhere in the world. Uh, and in retrospect, change was difficult for me. Uh, but the times I've made changes, either moving to Boston or taking a job at Zoomer Biomet, um, those were the best decisions professionally I could have made. And I, I want particularly the young people not to get so stuck in their lane. Don't be afraid to completely do something different. I talk a lot about surgeons that I believe belong in the Hall of Fame. And there's reps that belong in the Hall of Fame to me. Cam Lowe is certainly one of them. I talked to him just the other day and we were reminiscing You've seen so many reps coming through your operating room over the years, and I was just curious if you could share with the audience any advice that you would have for us on the other side of your table. Reps have one of the most important jobs in orthopedics, and and it's one of those things that shouldn't be glossed over. It's important uh, for the tone of the operating room. It's important for the outcome for the patient. Uh, And there are are so many important things that that good reps do. it changes a surgeon's life to have a good rep, and it's something that I've, I've been very fortunate with. I think that, that what I would focus on is try to see it from, from either the scrub tech's perspective or from the surgeon's view. And pretty much what we want is for the scrub tech to understand what we're doing and to help us do the procedure efficiently. And if you can and do a little bit of pre-work, you know, I would say during setup, if you can say the doctor's going to want to do the distal femur first with that, and then he's going to cut the tibia with that, and he's going to size and finish with that, just go through this. I mean, total knee is only six steps or something. If you go through that and, and make the day better, you can change the, the whole world for us. And so don't be afraid to be that assistant. I, sometimes a, a new rep will be a little nervous and will just sort of stare at you. And I, I sort of joke, I say, just staring at me isn't going to help. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you can stare at me all day long. It's not going to change anything. <laughs> and so, you know, don't be afraid to be involved a little bit. I think it's there. There are reps like Cam that are truly in the Hall of Fame. I remember a Popeye cartoon when they did a cutaway of his brain and there was this machinery that was just operating smoothly and all of a sudden everything just collapsed. And I think as (laughs) as a rep, when I've been in that situation and all I'm doing is just staring, uh, that's what's happened. Uh, Just the the entire system has collapsed and I got nothing. I got nothing for you. Years ago, uh, (laughs) I I needed a neck nail, which we used to use for a fusion, for a revision case. And I guess they didn't have any or whatever. And my rep back in Michigan, Ken Groupie, said, can, can the case go this afternoon? And I said, sure, whatever. And they sent a taxi cab from Warsaw, Indiana, and a taxi from Ann Arbor. And they met in the middle and got me the Neff nail set. I didn't hear the story until afterwards. And that's, that's the kind of uh, you know, extreme help people will go to, to just to make it work for people. Well, Dr. Freiberg, I, I just want to say a huge thanks. You're so good at what you do, and you have so many exciting things going on. You've touched the lives of so many people. Excited about these projects you're working on, and I really appreciate you coming on Device Nation to, to share your life with us. Kevin, thanks so much. I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. I've listened to you for a long time. Very proud of what you do, and I can't thank you enough for including me in your world. A huge Device Nation thank you to Dr. Freiberg for those kind words and coming on the show, including us in his world, 
And what a world that is. An incredible and impactful career. I know there's much more to come. You know what else I'm thankful for? Dr. Freiberg gave us the solution to our RFP angst. Gave us the keys to the kingdom. Here it is, and I quote, Don't be afraid to try something new. Sounds simple, right? So when's the last time you tried something for the first time? That, my friends, is what it's going to take as we look to go deeper and wider, not only as reps, but as distributors and orthopedic device companies. What was unthinkable five years ago needs to be under consideration. And what seemed crazy six months ago, well, it may not be crazy now. With so many hospitals reeling from shutdowns, everything's on the table. And I sincerely believe, you can quote me on this, those who are not afraid to change direction and to entertain creative new ways of doing orthopedics. And again, we're talking about reps, distributors, and companies. I firmly believe The future belongs to them. I can't say enough how thankful I am to be able to walk through this exciting phase of device with the likes of you, the best of the best. Truly humbled and honored to have you in the audience, and I hope you have an awesome week. Wish you great success at everything you put your hand to, and look forward to seeing you next time.